Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast. It's a classic pro wrestling podcast. Generally, we talk about 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're going to be talking 80s today. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before I get rolling, you want to join our Facebook group. Just search Stick to Wrestling. It'll come up. I printed a letter from a gentleman named Mike Cords, who was who was a, a youngster when he wrote this letter. It was in the magazine we talked about last week. And basically, he says that the WWF would have kicked the AWA's tail 40 years ago. Well, guess who's now in the group? Mike Cords himself from Bro- Brockton, Massachusetts. So that was a fun thing. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Sick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Uh, before we get rolling on this, Stephen Dusenberry, I want you to know I appreciate it. He was in the group and he wrote that uh, he's been having some health problems and he said that Stick to Wrestling, the, the podcast and the group itself helps him get through everything and that means a lot to me, Stephen. Thank you for saying that, and I, I hope you're getting better. And I'm going to say something real quick, and I'll get over it. Stephen, he's been in the hospital for 11 days because of COVID, okay? It's 2023, and just because Margie three names doesn't says COVID is over, it's not. Let me share my experience with the vaccine, okay? I had the original two. I got followed by a booster, After the second shot, I was really fatigued. I mean, it felt like the center of the earth was trying to drag me in. But that lasted five or six hours, and it was over. I had no other side effects. I've never felt ill at all. I've never gotten COVID, okay? That's me saying to all of you, if you're on the fence about getting the the vaccine, please get it. If you haven't gotten the third shot yet, you haven't had time, whatever, please go out and get it. My brother got COVID and he he got it like a couple of months ago and he had all three shots. So you might be sitting there saying, well, what's the point of getting the shots? If he got COVID, he had mild symptoms, mild flu-like symptoms for a day. And the next day he was back on his bicycle. So, I mean, it minimized, absolutely minimized the effects of COVID. Again, if you're not on the fence, if you're just like, hey, man, I'm not getting this thing, period. Okay, man, I heard you. But if you're on the fence, if you just haven't made time, please go out and do what you need to do. Thank you. That's my sermon for the week. This week on Stick to Wrestling, we're going to be talking about the World Wrestling Federation. During the winter of 1983, 40 years ago, First, I want to bring on my usual co-host or my recurring co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, thanks for coming on. It's great to be here, John. I loved your message that you just shared. And uh, yeah, we, you and I lived through this. And uh, for me, it was actually kind of a down period in the WWF. But uh, I look forward to revisiting with you and with our special guest this week. We, now, the three of us lived through the WWF uh, winter of 1983. This is why I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Returning after far too lengthy an absence is John Boucher. John, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, always excited to have you. Very excited about this time. 
Yeah. So, Steve, you grew up around Poughkeepsie. I grew up in Nashua, New Hampshire, around here. John, you were in the city, correct? No, actually, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. So I was, I was, I was watching this. Yeah. Right near corporate. Right near corporate <laughs> HQ. Yep. All right. So, well, I mean, hey, that's close enough to the city, and it's it's definitely WWF territory to say the least. If the tower is still up in there. Yep. So, okay, let's go over what happened in the WWF during this time frame. We start off, superstar Billy Graham destroyed Bob Backlund's old uh, WWF championship, not only in a, a bad segment, but a bad segment that led to more bad segments. But yet we're back on our feet. Bob Backlund has a replacement title belt that was given to him on an episode of Buddy Rogers Corner, which we're going to hear a bunch from. John, what were your thoughts on, we're finally seeing the end of the era of the belt that Bruno had, as Merrick Pedro Morales had that belt, and now we've switched designs. I mean, what were your thoughts on all of this? I distinctly remember the Superstar Graham destroying the belt. I remember that. I remember a lot about it. I remember Superstar struggling to try to rip the belt in half and not being able to rip the belt in half, which was was strange. Yes. I remember Vince getting up and screaming at Graham, what do you think you're doing? What do you think <laughs> you're doing? And Graham ripping the plates off, smashing the belt. Backlund, you know, he, Graham had attacked him. Backlund rolling out of the ring, screaming, why, why, why? OG, OG. <laughs> Oh, golly gee. This is actually what he's saying. Oh, gee, on TV. <laughs> and, and I remember the next week they had an interview with him where he's crying, talking about his grandmother and she, she was blind. And the only way that Backlund knew that she knew Backlund was a champion is because she could hold his belt. I'm like, what is this woman? Like the, a blind nun who lives <laughs> on the top floor of the building from the Sentinel, like get her a TV <laughs> for the love of God. And like, this is one of the things I think, along with uh, Snuka getting better reactions as a heel than Backlund was as a baby face, Backlund cutting his hair, that short cropped hair and moving to the singlet, all that stuff sort of snowballed on Backlund throughout, throughout the year. All that said, I did, I was a fan of this new belt, the big green belt. It gets a lot of, a lot of hate on, uh, the online on belt lovers communities. I, I like this big green belt on Backlund, honestly. And we, we do have a belt lovers community, by the way. It may not exist under that name, but it exists. It's totally there. <laughs> yeah. Steve, I mean, my thoughts on the the new championship at the time was that I thought it was time for something new. I mean, the Bruno belt, the Pedro belt, a superstar Billy Graham belt, it had been around forever and it was time for a change. But at the time... I liked the new belt. I, I didn't hate it. I mean, I didn't think it was anywhere near as good as Flair's belt. Now I look at it and I think it's tacky. What, what are your thoughts, Steve? Well, uh, to uh, John's point, I, I do think it was good that Billy Graham did have to struggle to tear the belt apart. As I think if it was, if it was rather easier for him to do and just like dismantle it with his bare hands, I think that would have come off like, God, what is this belt made of? I mean, it's supposed to be strong and you know look like a real championship belt. I mean, it's, it's not like you could take the Stanley Cup and make you know bend it into eight hundred pieces or break it into eight hundred pieces. So I'm glad that he did struggle with that. As far as the belt, uh, I'm not a big belt guy, I guess, but I didn't really care for the aesthetics of the belt, uh, just me. Um, maybe it was too big. Maybe it was too green. I just didn't, it just, it just didn't give me the warm and fuzzies. 
No, it, it definitely had a, a Kermit the Frog look to it. And again, <laughs> I, I, I liked the change for the sake of change at the time. But, you know, looking back, it's like, okay, I, I'm kind of – I think they were smart to give Hogan eventually his, his own championship belt. Right. Agreed. And I also, I, I think, too, just something new was important. I think that, that belt that uh, – that was it Nikita Molkovich who made that style belt? You saw the, you saw those sorts of belts all over different territories, so it was kind of kind of cool to see a new one unique to the WWF at this point. Whether it was the greatest of belts or not, it was nice to see something new and unique, like you guys are saying. Yeah, and you know what? I also looking at the belts at the time. We're going back forty years ago. The plates had the names of all of the former WWF title holders which back then there were like seven or eight of them and i took that as a sign i don't know if either either of you guys picked up on this i was like oh no they're never taking the belt off bob backland otherwise they're gonna have to replace the belt and i was just like no it's been five years i need someone yeah. else to be champion I, I, did, I didn't think of it like that, but I, I will say that uh, Backlund at this time was was really reducing weight and, and really getting this uh, almost like a track and field body runner look. And uh, having this humongous belt made him even look smaller than he was before. That's a good point. And you're right. Bob was the incredible shrinking man around this time. He was putting less time into being bulky, you know, having hitting the weights, frankly, and more emphasis on an endurance. And I know people get tired of me saying this, but it was almost like, you know, the wrestling business was going in one direction and Bob was sprinting in the other direction. And, you know, we'll get more on that later. I have a, a fun bonus question for you guys for the end of this episode. But anyway, Big John Stud, the body slam challenge continues. Now, I, I mean, it, it, to me, this is a good early 80s wrestling angle because they keep it nice and simple well aside from the fact that they do a deal where the prize money goes up $500 every time someone tries to slam him but Steve I liked the simplicity of it like you get a lot of money if you can pick this guy up and slam him but boy is he big yeah, right it, it was a, a very simple gimmick and uh you know they did have some enhancement guys who were maybe in a little larger size uh somebody somebody maybe the size of a dave barbie uh, somebody that could you you could think could budge him and they were all having difficulty and uh and i guess my favorite uh, person that was going to do it when uh, joe mchugh said uh Chief J, no, no, no. And then Andre comes out. But that's I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's my memory. Steve, of the I, I've got, a, I've got a, a surprise for you. I've, I've got a present for you. <laughs> okay. you. You might be hearing it on next week's episode. Okay. But I do have that. And Joe McHugh was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to hear it again. All right. I mean, Big John Studd, in my opinion, was almost the perfect WWF guy. I mean, it would be nice if he could work a little bit more, but he was a big guy, not only in terms of, of height. I mean, he was billed as 6'10, and I bought that he was 6'10, but he was like a 6'10 power lifter. I mean, perfect, you know, for Backland. And then, I mean, everyone had to see the feud with Andre coming. Yeah. I mean, I remember him debuting later. Later in, in 82. And the way he was presented on TV, I, I loved him when I was a kid. And looking back at the TV from that time, I can see why he was so effective to a, a kid watching TV at that time. 
you know, it was two minute squash matches with guys who were usually not that physically Im- impressive in two minutes, perfect to mask whatever limitations he had in the ring. And I, I remember when they first started doing the body slam challenge, it was like 500 bucks or whatever. And it was fans out of the crowd. Yes. And I don't even know if these were, were plants or just office people or employees of the Allentown <laughs> state fair or whatever, but these people did not look like wrestlers or athletes. They're just like dudes in a members only jacket or whatever. <laughs> I remember one guy trying to like do it like leg dive on stud and stud just like sort of freaked out and just sort of need, need the, the hell out of him. Like his, the side of his head and his face knocked him out of the ring. It was pretty crazy to see on TV. And um, if I remember by like mid January, they had raised the stakes to like a thousand or $3,000 and we're having, you know, prelim guys like you know, Bob Bradley or Barry Hart come out. But I remember that guy trying to leg dive big John stud. <laughs> And I I have it on video somewhere, and it really looked like no one had clued this guy in as far as, you know, what was supposed to happen. And you're right, Stud wound up beating the crap out of him. And he was not a small guy. It just it just looked really weird. Like, I'm I'm like, okay, no one clued this guy in for what he was supposed to do. He was like the Rochester roadblock about seven years early. Well, Steve, you have to fill you have to fill us in now on Rochester Roadblock. I mean, you, I know what happened there, but but share with our audience, please. Well, there was a, a TV taping, and I think it was uh, was it One Man Gang was wrestling. It was One Man Gang, yeah, yeah. There was uh, I think he was just wrestling a squash match, and this this unknown person runs into the ring. Uh, Rochester Roadblock takes down One Man Gang. But didn't he become like a, a known wrestler? I can't remember who that was. Yeah, now. he was the Rochester. He became the Rochester Roadblock. Oh, that was it. Okay, I thought he became a known, known, <laughs> famous wrestler later on, but I couldn't remember that. Yeah, this guy jumps out of the crowd and goes after one man Gang for real. And you know, Gang's a good guy. I mean, he's been in the wrestling business forever, so he knows what to do. But I mean, it was just it was it was a TV taping, and supposedly the whole thing was crazy. Yeah, and he was just trying to kind of like, that would be his audition, even without anybody inviting him to audition, and it it didn't really pay off for him, I guess. Well, it kind of did, it didn't, because he did get in the wrestling business, but he did not get very far. I sent out something to you guys. I was like, okay, here's some talking points for the show, and it's like, Bob Backlund's main challengers are Magnificent Morocco, comma, Superstar Billy Graham, comma, and then I forget to fill in the rest. But, you know, Big John Studd was getting his title matches. Ray Stevens was still around. Buddy Rose was kind of on his way out. They did were they and I don't think they started doing it in the winter, but they were definitely did it during the summer and they did it again where they would have the Samoans split up and challenge Bob Backlund for the WWF championship. And I mean you know, Steve, to me, that is, that is just a, a, a subpar challenger, in my opinion. They, I, they didn't do it with Fuji and Saito for the most part. Saito might have gotten a title match or two, like in a an ice arena. They didn't do it with the Moondogs. They certainly didn't do it with the Yukon Lumberjacks. They did it a little bit with the Executioners, but the Executioners were really big guys, even compared to the Samoans. I mean, what were your thoughts on the Samoans getting title shots, both in 1980 and 1983, Steve? In 1980, it was used a little bit. Uh, it didn't seem that bad since they neither they were undefeated as tag team wrestlers at the time. By this time, I don't think anybody really, you know, felt the need to see uh, Samoan number two against Bob Backlund for the world title. 
But I will say to, from the research I did, they were really a little bit short on the heel side for, for, for tops challenges for Backlund. Uh, Superstar was in kind of rough shape, so he wasn't as uh, valuable as a, as a main challenger. He did well at the box office, but his match quality was quite, quite poor. Buddy Rose probably did a little better than they had hoped he would. But Ray Stevens, who they were expecting to be a headliner on a lot of shows, he wasn't getting over with the audience as well as he probably should have. And I know the elder Vince uh, looked into it and uh, they tried to figure out why this wasn't working. And they just realized that, you know, his kind of his look wasn't up to par with WWF standards and his ring work was still good, but he just had that kind of pudgy look and looked a little bit older. And so I, I think this use of the Samoans was just kind of a stopgap. Orton was wrestling too. Orton was getting some good uh, championship matches, but the Samoans were just filling in some holes uh, while they were trying to bring in new guys like Morocco and stud and, and get then get them there, their shots that they needed. Yeah, Ray Stevens was a a major flop with me, and somehow, you know, I saw him in Georgia the year before, and he just seemed to get get way older in that during that one year period. I mean, he just didn't look or sound the part. He looked too old. But the the big challengers for Backlund were superstar Billy Graham, who was a big big name, and Don Morocco, who had a a crazy successful run in 1981. John, your thoughts on on superstar Billy Graham, the 82-83 version, as a challenger to Backlund, like through your eyes in 82 and 83? When I was a kid, I remember being excited for him, having having seen him in, in, in the older magazines, and then getting getting the Kung Fu Billy Graham. Yes. And it was the early 80s. I was a little kid. And back then, I think like every little kid in 1982, I was probably fascinated with ninjas, karate, kung fu, Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon, so on and so forth. So it didn't really phase me as as much as it should have. I was more like, oh, this guy's into karate now. This is a, this is just a new thing for him. Present, it's almost more jarring present day to go from <laughs> to go back and watch like Billy Graham in the 70s, who's who is absolutely magnetic. As opposed to this superstar who I find, you know, I, I hate to use the word repellent, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's you know the, the polar opposite. I'm going to use another magnet analogy, but it's the almost the polar opposite of the, the 70s, mid late 70s Billy Graham, where, you know, mid late 70s Billy Graham, I find myself willing to overlook the in-ring shortcomings a lot more than I do with the 82 Billy Graham, where it's like those, those are a lot more, it's, it's much more under a microscope given his appearance and so on and so forth, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I noticed he was smaller in 82, but to me, he was still, he's still superstar Billy Graham. And now I look at him now from that period, and I'm just, man, you know, he's, he's not even big. Like, all he's got left is that name value. And, I mean, I, I always thought in the 70s, Graham's interviews, they were good. I don't think they were as great as people make them out to be. And in 82, 83, his interviews took a, a big step backward. But let's talk about Morocco for a minute. I, I've told this story on the show before. When Morocco came back, 
late 82. I'm like, okay, this is it. Bob Backlund's done. Morocco is getting a superstar Billy Graham type run with the WWF championship. John, what were your thoughts on superstar Billy Graham like during this run? Superstar Graham during this run or Morocco uh, during Morocco? This run? I, I misspoke. My apologies. Morocco, I I I really enjoy Morocco during this run. Um, really, really, really enjoy Morocco. One of my favorite guys to watch, especially on the on the heel side. I generally enjoyed watching most Morocco backland matches. The only criticism I would have, and I guess it's probably more on Morocco because I've noticed it more with him, is that if he's working a longer match, he can s- sort of has a tendency to to telegraph that going into the match. Like if you're watching a Morocco match, like just a, a specific Morocco match I'm thinking of from later in this year with a different opponent, not Backlund, and, you know, five, 10 minutes into it, you can tell like, oh, these guys are going to go to a time limit draw. You can just tell by the way they're working. And that's, that's hindsight looking back. But back then I loved, loved Morocco. Awesome, awesome interviews across the board all the time. And I loved him for, squash matches on TV were all great. And all the MSG matches, my, my, one of my favorite guys to watch from this era. Absolutely. I mean, you, you talk about that, you know, five, 10 minutes into the match. I mean, that happened to me when I was 15, 16 years old in 1981, uh, going to Boston Garden and seeing Backlund versus Morocco. Like, you know, I didn't know anything about wrestling other than what I read in the magazines. And it was one of my first Boston Garden shows. And I could tell they were going an hour and they did just because they, they weren't doing anything <laughs> early. I mean, I know I've, to- I've told this story before. Like I said, I mean, I thought Morocco was winning the title, and then he comes back with Captain Lou Albano. I'm like, well, no, he's not if he's not with the Grand Wizard. And, mm. I mean, you know what? A run with Albano as his manager would have made more sense than bringing him back with the Wizard. Yeah. So anyway, let me bring this up, the history of the WWE. Thank you very much, guys, for, for that great site. Let's head to the Boston Garden. Uh, January 15th, 1983. It was a unique card for a couple of reasons. I'll quickly go over the results, or at least the important ones. Eddie Gilbert over Pete Doherty, Sal Balomo over Sweet Hansen. Uh, Morocco beats Backland versus, uh, uh, by countout. The Strongbows over the Samoan, or excuse me, they go to a draw, the Strongbows and the Samoans. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, superstar Billy Grant defeats Pedro Morales by DQ, and Jimmy Snooker and Rocky Johnson defeat Buddy Rose and Ray Stevens. Now, I say this was a unique card. Well, it was unique for me because, number one, you guys know how the WWF went. Like, before the end of the last show, they would tell you what the upcoming show was going to be. Sure. They announced this show without the Bob Backlund versus Don Morocco main event. So we're all kind of looking at each other like, oh, wow, you know, Pedro Morales is in the main event against superstar Billy Graham for the Intercontinental title, or is it a double main event with Snooka and Johnson against Rose and Stevens? Now, I know this is a small sample size. I mean, me and my three friends were like, oh, we're, you know, okay, no backland, but we're still definitely going. And that's why I, I point out that to me, it was always the WWF that drew well. With Bob Backlund as champion, but they drew well, as opposed to people coming to see Bob Backlund. Um, John, your thoughts on that whole thing? 
Like, you know, do we see, do, are we going to see Bob Backlund or are we going to see WWF wrestling no matter what? Yeah. The, is it the promotion that's drawing or is it the, the, the main event? Or yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough, and I always, it's, I, I'm, I'm always forced to sort of bite my tongue or, or my, my fingers on Twitter when I when I see that debate with people comparing like the Bruno run to the to the Backlund run and at this point I I, I have to agree and I, I love Bob Backlund love 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 Bob Backlund I have to agree that it's the promotion people are just going to see uh, the WWF the promotion not necessarily and you're you're proving the point here because they was it a fifteen thousand close to attendance at this card so yeah and I think the same is true. At the Garden, same is true with the Philadelphia Spectrum. No, no disrespect, of course, to Bob Backlund, but I think it's the promotion that people are are coming to see. I and again, I'm not throwing shade at Bob Backlund. You know, he's a, he's a very important part of the promotion, to say the least. But Steve, what are your thoughts on on that whole thing? Well, uh, the way the the older WWF had been built in the 70s uh, and even going back to the 60s, it, it really everything relied on Bruno because they it didn't have an intercontinental title. They didn't have a real deep roster of talent in those days. So um, Bruno was really the main driving force for the sellouts uh, and the big crowds. But, uh, you know, when, when it came time for Billy Graham and then when it came time for Backlund, by the time Backlund became champion in early 78, they really started to um, give the champion the support that, that he needed. You know, they, they brought in people like Dusty Rhodes and Mil Mascaris and Andre, and they started to make the tag teams a little bit more, uh, make the division a little deeper. And then finally, by about 1980, and then we get into the early 80s, uh, you can see the roster is a little bit thicker with talent. So I, I agree with you, fellas. I, I think that as time went on, it wasn't just the champion carrying all of the weight on his, his shoulders. I think that they really spread out the wealth, and uh, it was the card itself that uh, helped bring those big crowds, not just on one person's uh, shoulders. I mean, well put. I mean, you're right. They are branching out more. You know, we've got Pedro Morales as Intercontinental Champion for about two years of that. Now we've got Jimmy Snuka as has not even the number two babyface, it's the one A babyface. So, yeah, I agree with both of you guys. And uh, this show is also unique because it is one of two Boston Garden shows that I missed uh, from mid-81 until about early 1986. And it's because we had an incredible snowstorm out here. <laughs> there are people in this world, like, if you get bad snow, it's like, oh, it was a blizzard. And I specifically remember, no, it wasn't a blizzard. A blizzard is where... You have low temperatures, lots of wind, and like, you know, almost granular snow all over the place, but it's really icy. This snowstorm was a nor'easter where you've got giant snowflakes falling out of the sky, and there was just no way we were, not only no way we were getting to Boston, but no way we were talking about, okay, maybe get in the car and try to make it to Lowell and then just get on the, the train to Boston and finally, you know, someone just said, look, that all that's going to come out of that is us being stuck in the snow somewhere. <laughs> We're just not going to make it. Well, that's even more impressive. Like looking at the looking at the gate, it's like almost 15,000 people. That's not that's pretty great for a nor'easter. You know, it's true. Yeah. 
you know what, John? You'll understand this. Boston Garden, old Boston Garden, was a lot like old Madison Square Garden, where it had its own train station. You know, North North Station. You know, you're getting off of yeah. Boston Garden. Penn Station, you're getting off of Madison Square Garden. So yeah. that part made it easy, but it's still an impressive number. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I'm, you know, seventeen year old me is just like, okay, we're not going because the weather is bad. <laughs> you better believe the weather is bad. But anyway. You know, one thing I forgot to mention coming in right around this time, it was January 1983, not January 1st. It was like middle of the month. My local cable company brings on the Weather Channel. So now we have the Weather Channel in addition to everything else, except they boot out WOR-TV from New York in favor of the Weather Channel, which means that I was no longer getting the New York (laughs) wrestling. Oh. oh, it's it's worse than that, John. It's worse than that. <laughs> because, you know, we had a tradition going back about two years where every midnight, a few of us would get together. One of my friends, they had a townhouse with a finished basement and a TV. And at midnight, you know, three or four of us would gather and watch WWF Championship Wrestling at midnight. You know, at the end of a Saturday night, you know, who knows what we were doing before that. <laughs> having a couple of midnight beers watching wrestling, and that was abruptly taken away from us. Now, not only does that give us this anecdote, but 82, I had a lot of WWF audio, you know, coming to Madison Square Garden. I don't have as much in 83, and I think that might be the cause that WWOR was becoming less and less a thing in the cable industry. But I do have some audio, and we had a weekly feature, as many of us know, Bobby, Buddy Rogers Corner. Let's hear Rocky Johnson on Buddy Rogers Corner. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Gives me extreme pleasure. My guest is Rocky Johnson, the pride and favorite of Washington, D.C. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you one thing. This man sitting alongside of me was the one man that really helped me bring Jimmy Snooker around to where he is right now. Rocky, I'd like to have you tell the public something. Well, first of all, buddy, it was a pleasure because Jimmy's a personal friend of mine. And any chance, let me say this, that I can get the team with Jimmy in the future, I'd be more than happy to. Since I've worked with Jimmy and helped him, the knowledge that I have learned from you has been fantastic. You know, I think behind any great athlete, there's a manager, a coach, or a trainer. And I think you did a fantastic job with Jimmy. And I also think that uh, you've really helped me, I would say, my ability 110% since I've been around you and Jimmy and any chance I can get the team of Snooker to go against Stevens, Abano, or anybody in that crowd, I, hey, I'd just be more, hey daddy, I'd just be more than happy to, you know what I mean? Rocky, you're family with us and anytime you want to join us, man, we're ready. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you. Oh man, I, I, if I could look back in the future, I'll, I I would be saying to myself, "Don't worry, this is going. This segment is going to be replaced by Piper's Pit in about a year." I mean, I like <laughs> Rogers, but man, I mean, Steve, he could be a rough interviewer. All, all I could think to myself during hearing that was, "Liar, liar, Buddy Rogers." <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, this was, uh, yeah, and I, I, I also remember uh, the, the briefly existing between Rogers Corner and uh, Piper's Pit, the, the ill-fated Victory Corner. With, uh, <laughs> Robert DeBoard. <laughs> Robert DeBoard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Victory Corner was amazing, and hopefully I have the audio for some of that. I mean, it was just, most of it was Robert DeBoard just talking to himself, and he wasn't the most charismatic guy out there. And he, no. he'd, like, ask the guy one question, and he'd get, like, a one-word answer, and then he'd wrap it up. It was a terrible segment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you, and let's do one more Rogers Corner. We've got Mr. Fuji on Buddy Rogers Corner. Ooh. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest is the one half former owner of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Tag Team title, Mr. Fuji. And the fellow behind him, I don't even want to announce his name. But. Ladies and gentlemen, now hear me. Be a little quiet. I'm going to give out some news to you people that present company really doesn't want put out, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mr. Fuji, my sources have told me that he has made a tremendous investment in two to maybe three of the top wrestlers in the area today and it looks like Mr. Fuji is putting himself in a position to be a wrestling manager. I would, wait a minute, I would like to ask Mr. Fuji if this is true. You're lying! You're lying! All your stupid lies to you! I know, manager, I know. I'm Mr. Fuji, Mr. Fuji himself! You understand you? Let me tell you this, buddy, you stop trying to influence Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. My sources don't mislead me, and it'll only take me a little time to prove that what I just told you is right. Maybe you'd like your other gripes to come out. Let me tell you, I represent Emperor of Japan. I've been flagged because I'm samurai, me warrior. I have one thing, Emperor said, he honor me. You bring my belt to Japan. Any belt, world belt, you bring Japan. All right, ladies and gentlemen, with that, We'll go back to ringside wrestling. Okay, I want to remind everyone that anytime we play audio here on Stick to Wrestling, it is for educational and review purposes only. I, I wish we had the video of that because Captain Lou Albano, it's, it's Mr. Fuji seated next to Buddy Rogers. Lou Albano is in the background holding a Japanese flag, looking like a guy sitting in the back of a police car who just blew a, a .025. He, he did not look good. <laughs> But they tipped off, and I had I had completely forgotten about this until I put that together. That they gave us like a, a little harbinger of what was to come. That Mister Fuji, in about eighteen months, was going to be a manager. Um, I mean, you know, John, what are your thoughts on the, that that whole Buddy Rogers corner? I think I again, much like yourself, I had completely forgotten about this. Like I hadn't watched this Rogers Corner in years. I don't even remember if I've seen it since it first aired. But I was like, well, Buddy Rogers has been might have taken a while, but he was proved correct. His sources, his sources were correct. He was vindicated. It took a while, but he was vindicated. Uh, his sources don't mislead him. <laughs> and you're correct. Albano looks in. They do a couple of close-ups on Albano, and he looks like he's. Well into his cups 
as they say, (laughs) during this segment. Steve, Mr. Fuji had been in the World Wrestling Federation since the summer of 1981, had a nice run with the tag titles. Mr. Saito is gone at this point. I mean, and I remember at the time being like, oh, man, Mr. Fuji's not going away. What is this? Yeah, it wouldn't be long before uh, the arrival of uh, Tiger Chung Lee, and those two would form a team together. And uh, they were they were kind of your unusual kind of like mid level tag team. Uh, definitely not in the heavy run for the championship gold, but uh, they would end up breaking up and then having a kind of little uh, little you know hinting of a feud there. And and it wasn't really too long after that that Fuji did get into his managing gigs. So uh, we had a lot of uh, Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee tag matches to look forward to in 83. Yeah, I'm surprised that the whole segment went over my head 40 years ago because, I mean, I would think that's something I would have picked up on. Oh, Mr. Fuji's going to be a manager instead of becoming the next Baron Mikkel Cicluna, <laughs> which... You know, I figured that, that was it was one of those two. Like you know, he's going down down that you know kind of Stan Stasiak r- road where you know he's just there and his role is getting smaller and smaller. But you know, it all worked out for Mister Fuji, who is now 15 years old and is really from around Knoxville, Tennessee, which is quite funny. It's it's interesting though. You talk about like Fuji still being still being around at this point in, in his role. And it's, it's, it's almost as if he w- was, was in a, a, a role higher than he should have been for a little bit longer almost just because if you look at the, if you look at the roster here and you, and you see, you know, Fuji still in, in matches that maybe he shouldn't have been in at this point in his career. It's like, if you're, if you're looking up and down the roster and you see, you know, is Fuji really the guy you want having these matches with Jimmy Snuka and Rocky Johnson? I was just going to add to that, John, that uh, uh, Fuji uh, had asked years and years ago, I, is, is, it's pretty common knowledge, uh, Andre the Giant got booked everywhere by Vince, uh, the elder Vince. And uh, they actually entered into a very similar agreement where uh, the elder Vince booked Fuji out to different territories. And uh, they they were really kind of tight. And I think that's why he ended up being kind of like one of those core guys, almost like a Strongbow or Albano, who was very close to the office. And uh, gotcha, gotcha. they really wanted him kind of in that sweet spot of, hey, you, you can homestead here if that's what you want to do. So that, that that was my take on it. No, that that's always been my take as well. That you know, Mr. Fuji was you know getting on in age and was you know being put in a position where he was going to be taken care of by the WWF. I concur. Madison Square Garden, the heartbeat of the World Wrestling Federation. Um, big card: Johnny Rods pins Pete Sanchez. St. Jones pins Baron Mikel Cicluna. Superstar Billy Graham pins Swede Hansen. This is uh, a, a grudge match that took place after Swede Hansen was the uh, the referee for the previous month. Superstar Billy Graham versus Bob Backlund match where Superstar Graham claims he did not submit, but Swede Hansen swears that he did. And Swede Hansen is a babyface in some cities and a heel in other cities, something that you did not see in the old WWF. Any thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I remember I remember that 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 backwood match him as a referee. That is a very unique thing for this. I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by that sort of heel in one city, baby face in the other that you didn't see very much. And also the the you know the, the 
where you had sort of regional feuds that you didn't see in the garden. Like you'd see like a, not from this time period, but like a, like a Greg Valentine or a Pedro Morales feud that was big in like say Boston or Maryland, but didn't really take an MSG, for example, or, you know, these sort of, uh localized title changes almost you know like the valentine backland title change where backland the title was like sort of held up for a month there only only at madison square garden and nowhere else because of that sort of weird finish to that match those sort of things are so so interesting to me and especially in the wwf because it didn't didn't happen that often well, yeah, and we talked about that, you know, a year and a half ago when we did Fall '81, and it's just like the the WWF does that finish in New York, and then they they're on a station that is on, you know, nationally broadcast on cable, yeah. <laughs> and you know, we're watching this in Boston, and they're saying, okay, you know, the the title is held up in New York State, but not anywhere else, and it's like. You guys aren't getting this. The world is becoming a smaller place. And, you know, you've got to have all of your angles basically corresponding with each other. Any thought on that, Steve? Well, I wanted to say that uh, Sweet Hansen, much like Daniel Bryan uh, a few decades later, uh, I think between Vince calling him raw boned a lot and uh, he just got caught up in this wave of fan favoritism. Uh, The fans kind of like respected (laughs) him. But uh, I, I saw that match with Graham against um, Swede, and it, it was, uh, as Dave Meltzer would say, it was like minus uh, three stars. It was really, really atrocious. And there was a funny uh, funny comment in one of the earlier matches, which was Baron Mikel Sakluna against S.D. Jones. And, and Monsoon, who is still relatively new to announcing, he refers to S.D. Jones as S. Rather than special or a special delivery, (laughs) just S. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Oh man, just start calling Gorilla Gore or something like that. (laughs) Well, you know, Monsoon in these early episodes, or you know, his early, uh, you know, being an announcer, he he just comes off so kind of like a know-it-all, just like, hey, Vince, you know, this is why it didn't happen, you know, and he just really is an obnoxious, in my opinion, but uh, you know, years later, when he gets paired up with Jesse, and then Bobby, uh, I think everybody loved uh, Monsoon by that point, or at least a lot of the non-hardcore fans did. Yeah, I was going to say I was not a Gorilla Monsoon person by any means, but we were talking about Madison Square Garden, January 22nd, 1983, and uh, Don Morocco, the magnificent Morocco, as he was known back then, has a big match coming up against Pedro Morales. For review purposes, of course, let's let's hear what uh, Magnificent Morocco has to say about his upcoming match that night with Pedro Morales. Indeed, a man confident in his own abilities, as well he should be. And the match that has been ordered, the rematch with us now, the Magnificent Morocco, along with his manager, Louis Albano. And Mr. Morocco, I must say, you are most calm, cool, and collected. I sit in the eye of the hurricane, Vince McMahon. At this juncture, we are so close to being back together again in Madison Square Garden. One more time, Pedro Morales and myself, the ounces and ounces and pounds and pounds of sweat that I've dropped in Madison Square Garden, not to mention the lacerations and the bruises and the contusions I've suffered and the cuts and words that have flowed from my head that we've inflicted on each other. 
People say a lot about professional wrestling. Most of it, not very good. Pedro Morales and myself simply do not like each other. He's a champion, an intercontinental champion. Luis Albano here, my manager, captain, likes to have titles. Occasionally, it doesn't bother me to carry a belt around. It measures my prestige among my other peers. But everybody knows, anybody that watches professional wrestling, anybody that spends any time at all with any type of professional wrestling, knows there's room for only one at the top. Crowned or uncrowned, I've been at the top for a long, long time. I don't plan on getting down from the top. Say what you may about Pedro Morales. You just saw here a minute ago the power of that left hand, the driving force. How can a man take punches like that, they say, to the face and still look this good? How can a man take shots like that to the head and still look this good still keep standing not break nothing not get nothing black well you just saw it you just saw it happen sure i've had my eyes open sure i've had my nose open sure i've been hit in the mouth i get right back up because we hate we know hate we feel hate you got like that for somebody when you got it so bad for Morales. We've been in the garden so many times. So many times together. And you hear the people scream. How can I be so cool, you say? When I'm sitting in the middle of 22,000 people screaming at me, beach bum, with a referee that don't like me, with a commission that don't like me, with people all over that don't like me, with Pedro Morales who don't like me. When I'm sitting around everybody in the eye of a hurricane. Oh, yeah, I can stay cool. I can stay easy. But I can be bad. And I'm going to be bad. Mr. Morocco, we look forward to this rematch. Stay tuned for more. All-Star Rusting on the Madison Square Garden Network. I liked that interview. I like that Morocco has more than one speed that he can start slow, get really pissed, bring it back down and get his, his main points across. Your thoughts on Morocco in general in that interview, John? I got chills, not just because it's, it's so cold here. (laughs) Uh, What a, what a great promo. I, I love, like I said, he's able to, to start slow. I love how he, he doesn't bury Pedro. He puts the look at the power of his left hand. Look at the power of Pedro. He doesn't, you know, he, he, he elevates his opponent. doesn't, you know, talks about how much they hate each other. It's Morocco's is a fantastic, fantastic promo. And early 1983 Pedro Morales is not a guy that I was necessarily super excited to watch on TV every weekend compared to like a, a Jimmy Snooker or whoever. But Morocco Morales always had really, really, really good chemistry, I thought, in the ring and in the promos. And Morocco was able to get so much more out of Pedro Morales at this point in his career than, than any other opponent. Um, and I think this match from MSG is, is a great example of that. Like them, just they started off with a brawl, like right out of the gate, just pounding on each other and tearing the shirts off each other. And like Morales isn't going to have 
that kind of match with like a, a like a like a superstar building Ram or someone. Just Morocco is able to get that out of him. And that's one of the the along with the promo that we heard. That's one of Mike Morocco's finest uh, attributes, in my opinion. You know, Steve, I at the time I was not a big Pedro Morales fan. I, I am now. At the time, you know, I mean, he already had he was in the middle of his second in run with the Intercontinental Championship. He'd had it for well over a year. He'd had it for like 16 months. I was ready for something new. Where, where were you with the Intercontinental Championship at this point? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm probably right near where you are. I think, you know, Morocco is the man. But hearing that interview again, uh, kind of like just what John had said, um, I would, I mean, the one thing that, that came out at me was uh, unquestionably Morocco is the MVP of this roster of this group. Because if you look at all the other key players, uh, whether, you know, with Backlund was his, you know, Backlund had weaknesses as far as his, marketability, his interviews, uh, uh, Snooker was, you know, a head case for lack of a better word, or not a good interview. Uh, all these other guys have some sort of weakness or some kind of uh, negativity as far as their overall package, but Morocco here demonstrates so easily he has everything mastered. In the ring, he's a genius. He's he's hated by the fans. He's the best worker, elite worker in the company, and, and in this interview proved he's the best interview. So yeah, he's the MVP in my book at this time frame. You know, I might give Snooker the MVP, but I think Morocco is the best all-around talent. He's the guy who can do it all, including yeah. talking you into the building. I thought that, that was fantastic. And like John pointed out, he's like, you know, hey, Pedro Morales, you know, he's a champion. And he did not put Pedro Morales down. He said he hated him, but he's, it sounded like he certainly respected Pedro Morales. And also with Morocco, just going back to his promos, I love how whether it's Rogers Corner or just an interview in the empty arena with Vince or whatever, Morocco, he, 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 when you first see him, he's sitting, sitting there and he's got his sunglasses on. He looks, he almost looks like he's like he's hungover or <laughs> he's coming down from the end of a three day bender, <laughs> yawning sometimes. Looks like he doesn't care about this at all. Then all of a sudden, he gets the mic and it's like a switch is flipped and he's just on. And it's amazing to go from just him able, the way he's able to do that is amazing to me. Yeah. It, it always made me a little bit sad. Like, you know what Morocco was like in 86, early 87. I mean, you know, I, I mean, he got stale. It was time for something else and there wasn't anything else. The wrestling business had changed and, you know, no more just going uh, rotating from territory to territory to keep yourself fresh. And as we all know, Don Morocco defeats Pedro Morales once again uh, to win the Intercontinental Championship when Pedro's injured knee gives out during this match. Guys, I I'll tell this might surprise both of you, but I was not crazy at the time uh, with Morocco winning the Intercontinental Championship. And I'll tell you why. Number one, that cemented to me that he was not winning the WWF championship. I mean, you know, I didn't know the specifics about how mm. wrestling ran, but I, I knew enough about booking. I, I knew the concept, not the word that, you know, okay, this automatically disqualifies Morocco from winning the WWF championship. But secondly, I enjoyed the rain. I enjoyed the, the feuds, certainly enjoyed the feuds with Rocky Johnson and Jimmy Snuka. Um, but it, I felt like Morocco as intercontinental champion was something I had already seen before. Uh, Steve, I want you to share your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, thinking in those terms, I guess, at the time. I was just happy to have him back in the Federation because I looked at him as one of the major players. And, uh, you know, and, and like I just said, uh, you know, at least now I'm thinking he was the MVP of that time frame. I'm sure as a, uh, you know, teenager back then, I was thinking he was, he was got to be close to being the MVP of, at that time, too. But, um I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember back to thinking, did I think he would be a champion or I just the IC champion? But uh, I was just grateful he was back in the promotion because, you know, just seeing him there, if he had the Raiders hoodie on or, uh, you know, different T-shirts. I mean, he was just so kind of hip and uh, wearing the shades, the Ray-Bans. And uh, he was the coolest character in the WWF, especially with Albano by his side, you know, the famous submarine sandwich match and uh, other things that he he was known for uh he he was a classic i mean he was the kind of, i'm not putting bret hart down when i say this but he was like the anti bret hart he didn't take any of it too seriously he did not want the nwa or wwf championship because he just you know didn't want to put up with all that travel and you know he was happy doing what he was doing but john your thoughts on morocco winning the intercontinental championship and getting that second run yeah i was not at that point uh, I was not smart enough, either in the in the wrestling sense, smart enough, or in just general life sense, being smart enough to to read into it that deeply. Like at that point, I was under the impression that Morocco could win the belt from Backlund as well. He could have both belts. That didn't seem beyond the the realm of possibility for me. You know, like like much like in his promo, it's like it. it what angered me as a fan was. Morocco saying like, oh, I could have the, I, I don't mind having the belt, you know, if I, if I wanted, I could carry it around for a while. Like I was like, this is the guy who has the belt now. Jesus. I mean, as much as I loved watching him, I was like, this is the guy who has no respect for the, you know, the, the four year history of this belt, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that was like, that was infuriating to, 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 to young John Boucher more than anything else. Uh, just his lack of respect in the way he would, you know, other, you know, Backlund always had the belt around his waist. Pedro always had the belt around his waist. Morocco would have it over his shoulder or just like carrying it like a, like a duffel bag, you know, like an afterthought, which is like such a, you know, such a great heelish thing for him to do, you know? Oh yeah. He'd wear it around his neck. And then like you said, it's like, you know, I, I guess I don't mind how I have the room in my gym bag for this. Why not? <laughs> anyway, rest of the card, the Samoans be- defeat Tony Gurria and Eddie Gilbert, Ray Stevens over Jules Strongbow. Backland pins big John stud in seven minutes and 17 seconds. They did the thing where Backlund, uh, Stud had him in the backbreaker. Backlund kicks off the ropes, backflips him, and pins him. John, my thoughts, and again, you guys, you guys are great. You guys laid back and just enjoyed the show, and I overanalyze everything like I'm <laughs> about to do once again. <laughs> To me, if you're going to have John Studd against Andre the Giant, you can't have Bob Backlund pin John Studd in 17, 7 minutes and 17 seconds. That kind of takes all the giant air out of him. To me, th- this is a match where you have John Studd get counted out. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on that? Looking back on it, 1983 eyes, this was great. Looking back on it now, I, I agree with you 100%. Like This should have been a... A non-conclusive finish some like backland counted out and then you go into the program or just don't have you, you can't do this and then do andre 
immediately following it, especially, right. you know, or have, have it be, you know, maybe instead of a, maybe in less than a 10 minute match, have it be a 30 minute match or something. I don't know. Just not the way, you know, they did it here. Didn't, it doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, that doesn't really work. Steve, I mean, you, you are a WWF guy going way back. I mean, they protected the heels to the point where it was a fault. They protected Ray Stevens. They didn't let Bob Backlund pin Ray Stevens because they wanted to prop up Stevens for Snuka, even when they didn't have to, you know, protect the guy, the heel they totally did. And yet this time when the heel needs to get protected, they don't do it. Yeah, what what a difference! I mean, uh, you know, Backlund about a year later would be, uh, you know, almost uh, beginning to be an afterthought himself, and here he is uh, beating this monster at seven minutes plus. But I, I will say, on the positive side, the match itself was was probably better than what I expected it to be. Watching it recently, um, you know, they did a nice little sequence there where. Uh, uh, you know, Backlund bridged out of a move and kind of uh, powered out of it. And, uh, you know, I, I liked the way they kind of did the ending of the match. But uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, watching Stud, you know, it was like he just did not want to be taken off his feet for whatever reason. You know, he was like so uh, wanting to just stand there on his own two feet without really getting on the ground or on the mat or, or getting knocked off his feet. And I and I I kind of respect him as far as just I mean he he comes off as a legitimate tough guy in the match, but you know Backlund gets kind of a, a I guess what we would call a lucky win from a kayfabe perspective, but uh, it was interesting booking to to say the least. No, I figured that, you know, the fans have to look at it as well. If this guy can't beat Bob Backlund, how's he going to beat Andre the Giant? But, right. Well, who am I to say? Because it was a, a very successful feud when they actually ran it. Just me overanalyzing as usual. Yes, <laughs> they did do a weird sort of thing, too, where Stud, you know, they sort of may have gotten his shoulder up. So they sort of left a little bit of an out, right. I yeah. think, right. for Stud. So there's that, too. So it's, you know, uh, yeah, they, I mean, Stud is capable of having... I just watched a stud match a couple couple weeks ago, uh, like a, a big a couple years later, Big John Stud at the Boston Garden. Big John Stud versus Hulk Hogan, and they have a great like twenty thirty minute match. So Stud was capable of doing that sort of a, a good thirty minute match. You know, he did it with him and Hogan could do it. If him and Hogan could do it, I'm sure him and Backlund could have done it. Right. So I just I'm just wondering why they didn't do that. Why they didn't do that here? Unless it was just a time thing. Backlund wanted to go home early. Who knows? You never knew with Backlund, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I like Bob, but, you know, he, he did some odd things sometimes. All right. Uh, let me see. Rest of the show, Kurt Henning beats Mac Rivera. Jimmy Snuka pins Buddy Rose. So we know Buddy's kind of on his way out. Salvatore Belomo over Charlie Fulton and Rocky Johnson over Mr. Fuji. So we're kind of getting an idea that Mr. Fuji's going to be around. But, I mean, Steve, it, it looks like he's not really getting a big role. Yeah, yeah, he, he's he's really kind of falling off the charts a bit. Uh, I, I will add that uh, one thing that I found interesting, I would like to get your both of you fellas' uh, opinions on this. If you watch the card from the beginning, uh, they, they showed the, the very beginning of the card where Vince and uh, Monsoon came out, and they showed the um, Howard Finkel announcing the card. Uh, the, and he announced it as, you know, this is a night of all-star wrestling. And, and then they, he introduced the uh, New York State Athletic Commission people 
I was really surprised that they hadn't begun the, you know, this is a, you know, worldwide wrestling, world wrestling federation card or WWF. I mean, within, within a few months from here, you're going to see a heavy emphasis on the WWF TV shows of the name WWF or world wrestling federation, a lot more uh, uh, branding, so to speak. Uh, were you guys surprised to hear that them still using like all-star wrestling or a night of professional wrestling? I mean, that's something I personally did not notice at the time. Mm -hmm. But as time has gone on and I've looked at the TV, I'm like, okay, they used to, you know, just call it the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship, but they didn't really refer to the promotion as such. They would always say, you know, All Star Wrestling returns to Fitchburg, Mass on October 10th or whatever. I mean, John, any thoughts from you? Yeah, uh, up up until I want to say, pro- like right around this time, probably like mid mid eighty three, maybe like near the end of the first quarter of eighty three is when I first started hearing, you know, the name of the promotion mentioned on TV. Like up until that point, it was either you know All Star Wrestling, you know, promoted by Phil Zacco, <laughs> or uh, you know champ- Championship Wrestling. If that if it was that, it was the TV show. You would hear Worldwide Wrestling Federation or World Wrestling Federation. Uh, referring to the titles and you would hear capital wrestling, you know, up pre 82, I guess, you know, this is a, you know, presentation of the capital wrestling corporation, but you would rarely hear like WWF or world wrestling federation until right around this time. And uh, yeah, I, I, I remember watching this card not too long ago and being struck by that too. It was just all-star wrestling or championship wrestling, even in one of these, interviews we heard Vince himself right. refers to it as right. championship or all-star wrestling at Madison Square Garden, you know, not referring to the promotion itself, which is really interesting considering how th- things would change so drastically over the next few months. Yeah. I mean, and like you said, you know, you rarely, I mean, I knew from the magazines, they referred to it as the WWF, but the, the promotion itself, usually up until this point was just all-star wrestling. And now they are really getting the, the brand WWF out there. Now in the notes I sent you guys, it says Morocco gains the intercontinental championship related. Pedro Morales would soon be gone. Uh, I thought I'm glad Pedro had this run that started early 1980 and is, is kind of winding down three years later. I mean, it was, it was a good run and Steve, I thought it was really beneficial for both the promotion and the wrestler. Yeah. As far as Pedro, uh, he deserved it, I think. I mean, he had that great run as world champion of WWF in the early 70s. Uh, he didn't really come back after that run, even though the run lasted well in 1975, uh, doing a lot of house shows, not as much TV. So, like you said, he came back in 80, and he won the tag team titles, won the IC belt a couple of times. He was just a very important guy in the uh, 70s and even a little bit in the 60s uh, WWF system. So to give him one other big, big run would be nice. And, and as the three of us know, he would come back in 85 and he would have another nice run that would last into uh, 87 and then became a road agent after that. So he was always uh, well-respected within the organization and uh, one of the real uh, popular guys amongst the wrestlers and the uh, promotion as well. 
John, to me, this was kind of the end of Pedro Morales. Like Steve said, he did have that comeback in 85, but, you know, he really was just another guy after that. I mean, he was a guy who was, you know, over to some extent in the Northeast. He got a pop when he came to the Boston Garden. Uh, he got pops when he came to Madison Square Garden. But, like, he really was just another guy. He kind of faded from the WWF after that. I can't tell you much about what Pedro Morales was doing in 1984 and before. For his return in 1985, but I mean, you know, again, kind kind of the end for Pedro was a top guy. I mean, what are your thoughts, John? Yeah, I think he went. I think I want to say he went to uh, he worked Puerto Rico. He did for a few years after this. I don't. Yeah, um, and I love you know in Pedro coming back in '85. It was sort of like the the nostalgia of Pedro. You know, I, I, it was weird to feel nostalgia for someone for only, you know, been gone two years. But Pedro comes back with the same, you know, orange on orange tights, you know, in <laughs> in 85. You know, and I remember him. I think the last his last hurrah was sort of on a Saturday night's main event where he was, I think, set to wrestle the Iron Sheik. And then Piper came out and replaced yes, him or something. That's right. I thought that, that's the last time I remember seeing Pedro on TV. Uh, but it was, you know, and it was sort of like a nice little nostalgia Thing for Pedro there. He did, he did have a, a TV run of matches with him and Santana were like a regular tag team on TV. I like the way George Steele and JYD were at that time. Yeah, it was it was a nice run for Pedro, and I, I've seen photos of him in Puerto Rico challenging Ric Flair for the NWA championship. But aside from that, as a a major name, he's kind of gone. But Speaking of gone, Ivan Koloff has been gone from the World Wrestling Federation since 1979. And to use one of my Vincisms, he was a, what's the word I'm looking for? Back after a lengthy absence. <laughs> no, he was conspicuous by his absence. Okay, there we go. And yeah, I mean, he was, you know, to me, he was a WWF guy. He was former WWF champion. He had the big run against Bruno, 75, 76. As soon as Backlund, you know, kind of settled in as champion in 78, he's back. And, you know, we all kind of, I figured it out. Like, okay, they're bringing back the biggest names they have to go against Bob Backlund to start off with. And now after that lengthy absence, Ivan Koloff is back after four years. Steve, you were a WWF fan. Like, were you ever saying to yourself, like in 81, 82, okay, where's Ivan Koloff? What's going on here? No, I know I didn't. I wasn't as analytical as you were, John. <laughs> You're much more analytical into it. But uh, but uh, outnumbered here, everyone. No, no, no. You're, hey, we respect you, John. We wouldn't be here otherwise. But uh, but but the thing about the Koloff, uh, I mean, he still had it. I mean, he was. If you look at him in '83, he he looks a little bit more like Uncle Ivan from what what how you would know him in the NWA a few years later, and he had a great. Uh, uh, he had a great feud this year with Pat Patterson that they would have uh, had some really, really good matches. I, I almost think as far as why did he come back after a lengthy absence, uh, I think that, that with the elder man kind of like passing the baton to, to the Vince that we know, I think a lot of these older WWF guys were almost coming in to almost say goodbye to the elder Vince. Uh, because I know uh, from hearing about George Steele, uh, when George Steele finished up later in 83, he had like a heartfelt uh, hug uh, 
from Vince Senior and said, "Hey, we can't use you anymore, but it was great working with you." And I mean, maybe maybe it was kind of like the elder Vince is saying, "Hey, let's give Ivan one more good run before I'm out of here," and uh, that's the way I'm looking at it. Well, to me, it was like, you know, Ivan was a WWF guy. He was a top guy. I feel like there was a run missing. He should have been back way sooner uh-huh. and then bring him back in 83 as well. Uh, John, you know, one thing I noticed around this time I was watching and 40 years ago, I no- looked at Ivan Koloff. I'm like, you know what? He's looking kind of old, right? I looked up. Ivan Koloff was 41 years old at this point, so he's a little bit pro <laughs> wrestler. I say that yeah. about Ivan Koloff, yet I don't think a thing about Mr. Fuji, who's 50 years old, and be ah, he's the one who's too old. No, it's Ivan Koloff. Yeah, I, I Koloff was one of my favorite opponents. He's on that list of my favorite opponents for Backlund was like Adrian Adonis, uh, Morocco, Orton, occasionally. Koloff had that great match at the Garden with uh, Backlund in like I want to suppose it's seventy eight, seventy nine, maybe. I love that match and uh, August seventy eight, seventy eight. I don't, I, I think at this point when Koloff first debuts, he's still, I think he's still in Georgia full time, feuding with Orndorff and, and Murdoch. I think so. There's not, they're not really doing much with him aside from the TVs. No, no, he's not plugged into anything really yet. I loved his finisher at this time too. The the knee. To the back, yes, off the top rope. I used to do that to my little brother off the arm of the sofa. <laughs> he deserved it. Hey, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mark, if you're listening. Um, I used to love him, and there was a little kid like chasing poor Joe McHugh around with his chain, slamming the chain on the mat. He was such a great, you know. And he's always had. It seems like he had like fresh scars on his head constantly. <laughs> Just a great, great visually, great in ring. He was still great. And you talk about him not being back sooner to the WF here. I've always uh, amazed that he never came back after this. Like at any point when he was in Crockett during the Uncle Ivan stuff with Nikita, like I, I'm surprised he never came back, you know, in 85 or 86 for, for a little run or something. That, that always surprised me too. Oh, I have so much to talk about. There was talk in 1988 that the WWF was bringing back Ivan Koloff, but not as a Russian. He was going to speak normally on WWF TV. I forget what gimmick they were talking about giving him, but it was like a non-Russian gimmick, and I think it would have blown all of our minds. John, you were talking about what... Ivan Koloff was doing before this. He was in Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, feuding with Paul Orndorff, feuding with Butch Reed, and he had a feud where he was teaming with Iron Sheik uh, versus Dusty Rhodes and and Dick Murdoch. And I'm glad you brought that up because the Samoans left Georgia uh, for the WWF with no notice just a few months earlier. Morocco left Georgia with no notice for the WWF just a few months earlier. I had not heard anything about Ivan Koloff leaving Georgia with no notice, so I, I have no reason to think that. But here we go with Vince grabbing another Georgia guy. I didn't pick up on it at the time, but we've got kind of a run here. I mean, he's he, Vince McMahon has grabbed the Samoans, Morocco, and Koloff. Any, any thoughts on that, Steve? Well, it makes a lot of sense because uh, if we go chronologically here from January to February to March, you're going to see the WWF expand a bit into places like Ohio, which were, I think, where Georgia may have gone to 
ever since the Sheik had closed business down, what, in the 80s or so, those were other NWA cities had taken over those those areas where Sheik used to thrive. And uh, so what, what better than to bring in Georgia guys that then kind of deplete the Georgia roster and have a stronger WWF roster? Yeah, it, I mean, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, it feels like uh, Vince McMahon is definitely going after Georgia Championship Wrestling, like kind of spe- specifically going after those guys. I'll tell you what, let's hear some audio from Ivan Koloff on Buddy Rogers' Corner, uh, once again, for review purposes only. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, this week... My guest is none other than the former Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion, Ivan Koloff. I feel by saying that this gentleman is really in shape, and to me, he looks like Mr. Perpetual Motion. I feel whenever his opponent gets in the ring with him, he's got to be in shape, or the tide will go the other way. I know you have a great... Let's hear it. You know, just like you say, whenever you see Koloff wrestle just a few minutes ago, this American was so scared of Koloff, he fainted whenever he see Koloff go off the top rope with hammer and sickle to his back. He passed out on Koloff because he knew Koloff is in this area for one reason, to become either world champion or international or intercontinental champion because everybody knows Koloff is in condition. And like before, when I was world champion. In other words, you want a shot at that title again. This is right. The U.S. dollar, American dollar. This one. Well, maybe perhaps that might happen. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you. We're going to close out this episode of Stick to Wrestling with a question, but I just wanted to make a, a quick observation. I love this is the second Rogers Corner that we played this week where Buddy just wants to know, hey, what are your gripes? And I think that we're going to incorporate that into the title of this show. But I'll tell you what, we'll be back talking more WWF in 1983 next week. Uh, this is going to be a two-parter. But before we go, we took some questions from the Facebook group and there was a question that really isn't centered on WWF wrestling in 1983 but I think it's a great question it comes from a uh, former and future guest Vincent Waller and he says is there sort of a air quote world championship withdrawal effect that hits some former champions harder than most like knowing that this is your peak this is your ceiling you have tasted this rare air and you'll never truly be a threat to take the title again is there a a sense of pessimistic whatever for former champions and i i love this question vincent i have so much to say and i'm going to Give Steve and John the opportunity after I'm done. But I mean, Steve, Vincent really picked up on something here because I look back at the former champions, right, of this era. Jack Briscoe seems to have, you know, he was like that baseball player. He was once the cleanup hitter or number three in the lineup, and he's still good, but now he's like five or six in the order. He's wrestling in Florida. He's not really a threat for the world championship, but he's doing well. Briscoe's kind of the exception. Terry Funk kind of disappeared 
from the from the U.S. scene for a while after losing the championship to Harley Race. I mean, it felt like he had retired. He had legit knee surgery, and he didn't do anything in the U.S. until he came back to Florida in 1979. And then he didn't do anything big in the U.S. until the run against Hulk Hogan in 1985-86. Um who was another guy? I mean, Vern Gagne just retires and goes away. Bruno Sammartino was largely out of the business after he lost the championship to superstar Billy Graham. Speaking of superstar Billy Graham, not exactly great moments after he lost the title. He vanished from the business for about three years. Um, I mean, Bob Backlund didn't have a role after losing the WWF championship to the Iron Sheik. Iron Sheik kind of landed on his feet and he was kind of a fluke champion. I mean, do you John, do you have any thoughts on this on this idea Vincent put behind us? I thought I think this is great. It's a great it's really fascinating uh idea there. And I think it's it's you're really like you did there, you really have to take it on a on a uh individual by champion basis. Almost you can almost do it sort of the NWA champion versus the WWWF champion. Like the NWA champion, those guys always seemed to be, from what I've read or understood, almost seem to be relieved when they are no longer the champion. Just like the, the schedule was just insane, and with with especially like Terry Funk was like, "Get this thing away from me." <laughs> yeah, Briscoe, same way. Yeah, just like I'm done. This is just too. This is just crazy. Get this. Get this away. Um, as opposed to Flair, who apparently just loved it. Same with race. Yep. And with the WWF guys, you find a lot of those guys, especially like Graham and Backlund, sort of just like rudderless and lost after Graham. I understand. I, I mean, I don't agree with what he says a lot of the time about his post WWF stuff, how he ended up. With with Backlund, I really don't understand why Backlund wasn't able to find a spot somewhere like Backlund in the, the the AWA or Backlund, you know, working going back to Florida or something. Like, I, you know, I don't understand why Backlund didn't catch on anywhere else. You know, I know did the, the pro wrestling USA stuff that didn't really click. Yeah, it's it's there's it's a, it's a really interesting concept there. Yeah. I mean, well, Bob Backlund, you know, I'm probably going to have a, a, uh, an episode of Stick to Wrestling dedicated to, you know, what Bob Backlund, what was going on with Bob Backlund in 1984, because, you know, Bob, Bob was really, I mean, I, I've already mentioned it on this episode, you know, the business was changing one way and Bob Backlund was changing radically in the, in the other direction. But, uh, Harley Race is another guy who when he originally lost the NWA championship to Ric Flair in 1981, I mean, he seemed completely lost after that. I figured once again, he went into semi-retirement, which is why it shocked me when he won the championship again in 83. And then until he went to the WWF in 86, he just kind of seemed like a guy who was wandering around. But anyway, Steve, any thoughts on what Vincent asked? I mean, I'm just, I mean, this knowing me could be its own show its own episode, but I wanted to get it out there. I'm just like, you know, I think he hit on a lot of really good points here. If you, it seems like when you lose the world championship in wrestling, you know, like that wrestler seems lost one more Ric Flair in 1990. I mean, when sting won the championship, it was supposed to be like the end of Ric Flair as NWA champion. And it certainly didn't work out that way, but Rick seemed kind of lost as well. 
Yeah, and, and I think you guys have hit on, on a lot of the, the major bullet points here. You know, I think the two most interesting cases are uh, Superstar and Bob Backlund. Um, Superstar to this very day, uh, he just, you know, any any interview, he he talks about uh, how, uh, what a terrible mistake the uh, elder Vince McMahon made in taking the title off of him and putting it on that child, Bob Backlund. You know, he's still very disrespectful toward Bob Backlund now. And both of these guys, I think, are having health issues and they're, they're getting to be elder gentlemen. So it's really uh, sad to hear them uh, talk about each other in this way. And Bob Backlund just seems so lost, like uh, like almost like an abandoned uh, person out in the elements uh, when he was in Pro Wrestling USA. They had no idea of how to use him properly or what they should do to get him over. I guess even us, uh, you know, insider fans or hardcore fans, uh, we we probably don't know the real value of the championship belt. I mean, as far as what it means to them and their and their persona and uh, I guess their even their identity. It, it's so much tied in with their identity. I mean, uh, Bruno, uh, you know, asked out of the championship twice, and uh, I don't think he had any ill will. He was just happy to get out of there too from all the grind and the injuries. Uh, but the the cases of Backlund and Superstar are, are really the most uh, interesting to tie in with Vincent's excellent question. Yeah, I think I will eventually do uh, a, a one episode on on Bob Backlund in 1984, and and you know, like you said, he went to Pro Wrestling USA, and Pro Wrestling USA. I mean, Bob Backlund was clearly meant to be the star, the star of that show. It was like, you know, Pro Wrestling USA featuring Bob Backlund, and it just didn't go the way that they were they were planning. But yeah, Vincent, thank you for the excellent question. Hopefully, we'll be able to get to more next week. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Luke Kippelman for all of the great work he does as our producer. And everyone, enjoy the Super Bowl, but you know, drink responsibly. Okay, I, I started lecturing you at the beginning of the show. I'm going to do it again at the end, and. See you next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.